0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm joined, as always, by Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akhil.
1: Hello, Andy. And this time I'm in my office, and I hope the sound quality is better. Apologies for some of our recent episodes. My Wi-Fi at home is not the best.
0: Okay, well... So we're doing what we can to improve the technical quality of things. And speaking of that, those of you that get our podcast by watching it uh, on the website uh, will notice that the website was improved. Uh, If you've been having any problems recently getting it to load, we completely redid the podcast page, which, uh, and as a result of this complete redo it, it looks exactly the same as it did before. (laughs) Uh, After hours and hours and hours of your hard work. But actually, that was the intention, um, and uh, now it should load, and it, I, I can attest that it is loading very smoothly and much quicker than it really ever has, including on mobile phones where it was crashing for technical reasons that I won't bore you with. Um, when it loads, you'll see six our most recent six episodes, but just at the bottom, you can just click for the next page, you'll see the next six, the next six. And so forth. So you can easily access all the all of them, and you can go back to the first page. You know, very very typical for uh, website navigation. But um, all of the show notes remain up from all of the episodes. So this way, you can continue to access all the extras that are there: various videos, sound files, law review articles, Supreme Court cases, um, and the occasional whimsical. Uh, item like uh, Monty Python sketch so <laughs> you get it all in America's constitution so so that's uh that that's one technical note the other is uh centers around uh Akil's books and of course the latest book the words that made us is a book that's been quite relevant to our discussions recently as we talk about originalism um And this is America's constitutional conversation, 1760 to 1840, where a lot of, not all, but a lot of the originalist thought took place. I say not all because, uh, as you know, Akhil's brand of originalism particularly is interested in the amendments, and not all the amendments were done by 1840, uh, including some very important ones that we'll be discussing over the next few weeks in the Reconstruction Amendments. Anyway, um, so... Those of you that have been enjoying his book and writing to us about it, we did have an offer for a uh, book plate, an America's Constitution book plate. All you have to do is send an email to andy at akilomar.com or fill out the question form on the website. Make sure you let us know your address uh, and any inscription that you'd like beyond uh, a mere signature. And... Uh, We'll send it out to you. Now, we've been getting a lot of these requests, which is great. Uh, And some of the requests have been requests for finding out why they haven't gotten the book plate. And the reason is that they're not back from the printer yet, uh, as I indicated last week. We are expecting them this week. But then it will, because there are so many, it will take some time to get them all autographed, addressed, and, and out. So be patient, but they are coming. And you can still ask for one uh, via the mechanisms that I explained, Andy, at com, or on the website com slash podcast hyphen two. Okay. And so speaking of originalism, we've been talking about originalism over the last uh, few weeks, um, and then last week we began a project which we called Originalism on Trial, where we endeavored to look back at the major cases and controversies over the centuries American history, and to see how those fit with an originalism framework. In other words, how would someone using a proper originalist method approach these issues? What would the analysis, what would the method look like? What would it come up with? And how does this uh, respond to the various critiques of originalism, criticisms of it as a method? Some of, them, some of those critiques we discussed last time, it, it's indeterminate, uh, or it's ideological, etc. We went through them, and we'll go through them again. So we thought we would continue with that, and we promised that we would. Of course, in the meantime, life intrudes, and things happen in the world. And over the last week, two major things that have happened are more escapades at Mar-a-Lago that involved a, a search of the ex-president's home, looking for uh, sensitive documents, presidential records. And in addition to that, there was in Congress uh, an important bill passed, the Inflation Reduction Act, and which will be signed by the President no doubt, uh, forthwith. And that's a, a major bill it has a lot of uh, importance for climate uh, change and, and so on. But uh, from our point of view, it's important in the sense that it involves Congress's tax power uh, and its power to uh, spend. So we're going to discuss the constitutional issues that are implicated in that, not, not so much in the bill itself, but in these sorts of bills and in bills that we expect or at least might see uh, down the road. One of the things we do in this podcast we we don't just look back; we also look ahead. So, for example, we predicted the results of most of the Supreme court major Supreme Court cases in the last year, accurately I might add. And it's not just a matter of helping you at the uh, betting tables, but rather instructing you um, and informing you about the way the court is thinking, the way the Constitution plays out, properly interpreted, and what you can expect going forward legislatively as well, in light of some of these. A constitutional developments. So, although we're looking back, we're also looking forward and looking at today. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of what's implicated with these episodes. We're going to do an originalist analysis to identify the big, the major concepts, like we did last time, For example with religious freedom, identified equality as a major concept. We're going to take a similar approach here. And then we're going to talk about once we've identified the major concept, we're going to talk about that area of the law and Professor Amara's expertise, what he's said about it, and then we'll bring that back after we do that analysis, after we've given you the tools to understand what's going on, and then we'll say, okay, now in view of that, here's what's going on, what can we now say about it? And with that, I give you Professor Omar.
1: Okay, so today I think we're going to mainly focus on Mar-a-Lago, and I'll, I'll give you a Fourth Amendment analysis for reasons that will become clear very shortly. And then later, maybe next episode, we'll talk about the Inflation Reduction Statute, which, as Andy said, involves some very important issues of tax law, which in turn implicate constitutional law. Now, last week, I challenged the audience to identify the most important Supreme Court decision from uh, the early years, the the George Washington era. What's the name of the most important case, actually pre-Marshall, he becomes Chief Justice in the early 1800s, but what's the most important case in the 1790s and
0: what was it all about? And Andy, did anyone get the answer right? I'm sorry to say that the only person in our audience that got it right was me. <laughs> okay, and I don't count by identifying. You, you, Hylton versus You, you count, States. but but not in this way.
1: Okay, <laughs> why am I mentioning it? Because that case was all about the tax power. The American Revolution is all about taxation and representation. The case is a case called Heilton, United States versus Hilton. It's the most important Supreme Court case of the seventeen, the early seventeen nineties of the George Washington era, and. It's a case that was argued by Alexander Hamilton, who cared a lot about taxes for national security reasons. It was the only case that he actually ever argued before the Supreme Court. He wins it unanimously. James Madison is on the other side. And you're going to hear all about that next week. And why is that important? Because actually the issues teed up in that case are going to help you understand the big issues in the recent tax and spend legislation. For example, that law one of the, the big issues was whether it was going to get rid of the cap on state and local taxation. People paid property taxes at the state and local level. Can you deduct your property taxes for federal purposes? And if so, is there any cap at all? Okay. Well, one question is, why are property taxes state and local and not federal? Why isn't there a federal property tax, for example? And if actually new revenue is needed later on, if actually... Congress decides to to allow people to to deduct um, state and local property taxes. Well, they're going to need to find some other revenue offset. What sort of other taxes are they allowed to have? Are they allowed to have, for example, a wealth tax, which some people are talking about? Um, Well, in order to understand all that property taxes, state and federal, possible wealth taxes, federal wealth taxes, you need to understand Hylton versus United States, and I didn't, actually, five years ago, but now I believe I'm the world's expert on it, and next week, audience members, you will be too, but that's next week. This week is Mar-a-Lago, and in particular, the Fourth Amendment. Why the Fourth Amendment? Okay, what happened at Mar-a-Lago? Well, there was a search, and certain item by the government, and certain items were seized, documents and the rest, and it involved a house. And it involved papers. Oh, my goodness, if only there were something in the Constitution that talked about searches and seizures of papers in places like houses. Well, in fact, there is. And it's the Fourth Amendment. And I'm going to give you an originalist analysis of the Fourth Amendment. I'm going to zero in on its text. And then I'm going to tell you about its original historical context. And in the course of doing that, I'm going to try to explain why what you think the Fourth Amendment means is maybe not what the Fourth Amendment really means, but the courts have said about the Fourth Amendment, including the Supreme Court, have been only partially right and only partially wise. That the constant, One of the knocks on the uh, originalism is, oh, it's out of date. It doesn't actually help us think straight about the issues of our era. I'm going to show that that's exactly wrong, Actually, the Fourth Amendment is smarter than what the Supreme Court has said about the Fourth Amendment. And doctrine in this area is a little bit garbled, as it was, for example, in the church and state area. And I'm going to make predictions about going forward how Fourth Amendment law might work itself pure from an originalist point of view. And liberals will like some things about that, and conservatives may like other things about that. And I'm going to explain to you why, how all of that helps you see what the real issues are in the controversy between Donald Trump and his supporters on the one side and Merrick Garland and his supporters on the other. So with that, let me actually read to you the language of the Fourth Amendment. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures... Shall not be violated. And no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the person or things to be seized. Okay, that's not that long, and yet the Supreme Court has managed basically to completely garble it. Here are some key words. Okay, it's a right shouldn't be violated. There's special emphasis apparently on persons, that is, bodies, houses, and papers, above and beyond everything else, effects. There's the word unreasonable, and that seems to have some significance. It's about searches and seizures. Oh, and then there's all this discussion about warrants and probable cause and oath or affirmation and particular description. Okay, how does it all fit together? Here's what the Supreme Court has said and then Because it doesn't make sense, it's taken it back. It has said, first, that these are the the three big pillars of modern Supreme Court case law, each one of which is actually being undermined in the way that the Lemon Test was unraveling uh, for many years before it finally got toppled this term. Supreme Court has said, warrants are generally required. Searches and seizures generally require warrants. That's what they've said. Or I could put it slightly differently, a search without a warrant is, as a general proposition, per se unreasonable and therefore unconstitutional. Now, I disagree, but okay. The court has also said, oh, probable cause is a global requirement for all searches and seizures and has said, in effect, oh, if you have a search and seizure and it doesn't have probable cause, that's per se unreasonable. The court has said that, and then it's proliferated a bunch of exceptions. I don't think actually it it is a global requirement. And the court has also said, oh, there's another word that I mentioned, shall not be violated. Well, what happens if the right is violated? Well, the court has said the proper remedy is to exclude the evidence, the so-called exclusionary rule, if stuff is found by the government in an improper search or seizure, then that evidence can't be introduced against the searchee, the person being searched or seized in a criminal case. That's the so-called exclusionary rule. And the court has said that. And I think that's wrong, too. So the three pillars to repeat are a warrant requirement, a probable cause requirement and the exclusionary rule, according to doctrine. And I'm going to say the text says none of those things. And the court is, in fact, in the process of actually abandoning all of those things. And rightly so.
0: You know, I think that our audience, uh, if any of them has ever watched any episode of Law and Order, they know that after somebody gets arrested, the first thing that happens after bail is um, there's, there's a uh, suppression, suppression hearing, hearing. Yes. At, at which time they say, did you have a warrant? No warrant? Yeah. It's out. Okay. Exactly. Did, did you have probable cause? No. We decided, for whatever bizarre reason, you know, the uh, it was it was owned by, by this person, but it was the daughter that gave permission. You know, whatever yes. for, it, it no probable cause. It's out. Okay. Now it's out. All the evidence is suppressed. The guilty, per, the, the guy who we know did it goes free. Yes. So, so those and are the none of that makes any sense. right? And those are the you three know? pillars that you mentioned, and they happen in every single episode of Law & Order for 25 years. And in
1: fact, actually, in one episode of Law & Order that we're not going to talk about today, another one of my articles is directly quoted by Sam Waterston, Jack, Jack McCoy. But that's for another episode. And, and that was actually about Double Jeopardy. But we'll talk about that later.
0: We like okay. Sam Waterston because he plays Lincoln a lot.
1: Oh, and he's a a Yalie. And he's a very nice guy, actually, for future episodes. Maybe we can have him on the podcast. That would be very cool. Okay, so I'm going to read you the text of the Fourth Amendment one more time. I want you to hear what it doesn't say. Does it say all searches and seizures must have warrants? Does it say all searches and seizures must have probable cause? Does it say... If the Constitution, if, if these rights are violated, evidence is excluded. I'm going to say it actually doesn't say any of those things, and it does say something else. But let me just first try to prove to you it doesn't say any of those three things. What it says instead, just in a nutshell, is all searches and seizures have to be reasonable. That's the rule. Not warrants, not probable cause, but they reasonably can't be unreasonable. And that warrants, rather than being required, are limited. And warrants have to have probable cause, but unwarranted searches actually don't always have to have probable cause. So there's no global warrant requirement. There's no global probable cause requirement. Probable cause is a requirement only for warrants, and warrants aren't to repeat always required. And there's nothing about exclusion of evidence. And it says nothing, for example, about criminal cases versus civil cases versus anything else. I'm just going to read you the language one more time. Now that I've primed you to listen to what it does say and doesn't say, it doesn't say unwarranted searches, searches without a warrant are per se unreasonable. It doesn't say that at all. It does say in effect is that warrants without probable cause are per se unreasonable, but not warrantless searches. And then you're going to say, well, why would that make sense? And I'll tell you. That's where history comes in. But first, let's pay attention to text
0: and syntax and grammar. And that's the, something that an originalist method does, is it starts with the text. Always. Um, and, and then I'm going
1: to tell you about the context and how this makes sense of all sorts of other things. Jury trial and free speech and free press, you know, everything. P- uh, privacy. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized." Now, my first point is grammatically, it doesn't say warrants are always required. doesn't say probable cause is always required. And it doesn't say anything about exclusion of evidence. Now, I'm going to make a second point, which is those rules actually, which the court has promulgated and then repudiated, but only sometimes, those rules actually don't make any common sense. So here, originalism is going to make common sense court doctrine isn't. The knock on originalism is, oh, actually, it doesn't answer the problems of today. It doesn't even frame the problems of today. I'm going to say it answers them better than what the courts have said. And so actually, once again, we want to rethink precedent in the name of first principles of originalism. So let's just take a few. We're far from our lago for now, but we'll get there. So tomorrow I get on a plane and I'm going to go through a metal detector and there's no warrant for that. And there's no probable cause for that. And the court thinks that's just fine because they actually don't really require warrants for all searches and seizures and, and don't really require probable cause for all searches. and seizures. Now, I believe that going through a metal detector at an airport or to get into a courtroom for that matter, or to cross a border, these are actually generally reasonable searches and seizures, but they're not with warrants, they're not with probable cause. I believe 99% of actually the searches and seizures that take place in America today in fact, don't have warrants or probable cause and they're reasonable. And I'm going to identify what some of the factors are in my view that make them reasonable. So there is no general, oh, warrant requirement what about a consented to search and you actually said well what if i don't consent but my wife does and does it matter if she actually had authority to to let them you know go into to my private study or maybe she didn't but the cops thought she did and if the cops thought she did reasonably but she didn't you can't really say i waived anything if the landlady does it um, there are a gazillion exceptions to the so-called warrant requirement. Consent searches, border searches, unintrusive searches, roadblocks, all sorts of stuff. Exigency, there's not time to get a warrant. Fine. And now you say, well, at the very least though, if you're not going to get a warrant, you, you need probable cause because Here's what it does say. You can't get a warrant without probable cause. That's really clear grammatically. No warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause. So let's imagine you don't have time to get a warrant. It's some hot pursuit situation. Well, surely you need probable cause. And I say, actually, the court seems to say that, but then it it takes it back in the next breath because surely you don't. Because to repeat, I'm going to go through a metal detector tomorrow and there'll be no probable cause at the airport. And when you cross a the border, there's no probable cause. And when people are stopped and frisked in what's called Terry stop, actually the court is emphatic that you don't need probable cause. And all these things are actually reasonable in various ways, but there's no probable cause as a general proposition for all searches and seizures and no warrant as a, that, that actually does in fact issue for 99% of the searches and seizures that happen in America today and it says nothing whatsoever about criminal exclusion okay so i'm going to read you now and then i'm going to tell you what it actually does say and why but i was very snarky 25 years ago i wrote an article it's in the harvard law review it's called fourth amendment first principles and it became the first chapter of my first book the constitution criminal procedure it's very sarcastic about the supreme court and yet the Supreme Court has cited this article on many occasions because they actually understand that what they've said doesn't make sense. And if I'm a true friend of the court, I'm going to have to say what you said doesn't make sense and you have to change it. And here's how you have to change it so that it does make sense. Um, so here's what I wrote way back when, 1994. And by the way, this was at a lecture that I gave dedicated to the great Telford Taylor. There's a whole episode on Telford Taylor, who I think was the greatest lawyer of the 20th century. So if you haven't heard that episode, audience members, you might want to go back and listen to it at some point. Here's how I begin an article. We'll we'll put it up on the show notes in the Harvard Law Review, February 1994. It's called Fourth Amendment First Principles. The Fourth Amendment today is an embarrassment. Much of what the Supreme Court has said in the last half century That the amendment generally calls for warrants and probable cause for all searches and seizures and exclusion of illegally obtained evidence is initially plausible, but ultimately misguided. As a matter of text, history, and plain old common sense, these three pillars of modern Fourth Amendment case law are hard to support. In fact, today's Supreme Court does not really support them. Except when it does. Warrants are not required unless they are. All searches and seizures must be grounded in probable cause, but not on Tuesdays. And unlawfully seized evidence must be excluded whenever five votes say so. Meanwhile, sensible rules that the amendment does clearly lay down or presuppose that all searches and seizures must be reasonable, that warrants and only warrants always require probable cause, and that officials should be held liable for unreasonable searches and seizures are ignored by the justices. Sometimes the result is a vast jumble of judicial pronouncements. That's not merely complex and contradictory, but often perverse. Criminals go free while honest citizens are intruded upon in outrageous ways with little or no real remedy. If there are good reasons for these and countless other odd results, the court has not provided them nor has the Academy. Okay. So, wow.
0: In that paragraph towards the end, you identify, um, some bad results of this so in other words earlier you were saying well it's a jumble there's a lot of exceptions the law is confusing and that's not great but doesn't really affect citizens that much you know day to day whether lawyers you know got their act together or not but here you're saying that there are actually bad results of it so where it's
1: perverse so Mm -hmm. let's start with the exclusionary rule Okay, criminals go free even if they're guilty. It's all get out, and that punishes the victims of the crime. You see, you've done nothing wrong. There's there's a murder. I I I was um, basically moved to to write all this in part because of the OJ case, and he did it, and people actually died. And I'm not going to go into all the details about how the exclusionary rule actually caused all sorts of perverse. consequences in that very case, even though not all the evidence was actually suppressed, but it, it affected litigation strategy in all sorts of ways. So just sort of start. It doesn't say anything about criminals or in all criminal cases. Other amendments say in all criminal cases, it doesn't say anything like that. And it's perverse that you, you actually get off scot-free if you're guilty of killing someone. But it's worse than that. See, because if there's I say there's also no proper remedy for innocent people. And if I'm innocent and the government knows I'm innocent, and if the only game in town is the exclusionary rule, well, then it's open season on a keel because you can do whatever you want to him. You can you can strip search him and rough him up and break into his house every day, and you won't find anything, and there's nothing to exclude. Oh, and by the way, strip searching is the consummate unreasonable search and seizure strip searching me on main street at high noon in front of everyone. It doesn't generate evidence. It has no causal connection to, you know, finding criminal evidence or not. It's affirmatively perverse. It's upside down. It's providing things that the framers and the text did not provide um, windfalls to the guilty and not protecting the innocent. Okay. So let me now start. I made a textual point. It says nothing about criminal And by the way, here's doctrine today. They search Akil's house and find stuff that implicates Andy. Oh, in a criminal case, they can use it against Andy. It doesn't say anything like that. They can use it against Akil in a civil case, in a civil forfeiture action, but not in a criminal case. Fourth Amendment says none of this stuff. There are other amendments that talk about criminal procedure. Actually, this one is not criminal procedure. Okay, Keel, then what is it? And if you don't have the exclusion arrow, how are you going to make sure that its rules are not violated? Because the keel it says it shall not be violated. Now, let me give you one other historical fact. So I said first I start with the text. It doesn't say it. But yeah, there are lots of things the Constitution doesn't say in so many words, but you read between the lines, and it doesn't say separation of powers, but that's part of the system. There's Article I. It's in a separate article from Article II. It's in a separate article from Article Three, and the institutions of government, the Congress, the President, and the courts actually are separate in various ways. So there is separation of powers, even though it doesn't say so in so many words. There is checks and balances. There is federalism. There is all sorts of unwritten constitutionalism that involves connecting the dots. And so you could say, well, Akhil doesn't say exclusionary rule, but, but that's actually in the backdrop because otherwise, you know, it, it's open, the, the cops will no incentives to comply with these rules if they can profit from their own misdeeds. Government can't profit from its own wrong. Surely, Akhil, you agree that that's an unwritten principle of constitutionalism. I'm going to say, well, yes and no. First, an historical point. So the text doesn't say any of this. Now originalism. No framer ever said there was an exclusionary rule or anything like it. None. So it's not, oh, we've got Madison on one side and Hamilton on the other and and where's Jefferson. None of them ever said anything like this. No state constitution ever said anything like an exclusionary rule. And almost all state constitutions have search and seizure counterparts to the federal. The federal, remember, limits only, uh, the Fourth Amendment limits only the federal government before the Civil War. And so their state constitutional counterparts, none of them say the exclusionary rule. But not just what people say, no judge in America, state or federal, ever excluded evidence on anything like an exclusionary rule theory for the first hundred years after the Declaration of Independence, Joseph's story—we've talked about him from time to time. He was a great scholar, uh, jurist. The, the the one of the two most important people on the Marshall Court. The other, of course, being John Marshall himself, professor of law at Harvard. This eminent scholar. In one case, an, a lawyer argued something like the exclusionary rule and he was incredulous he basically said i've never heard of such a thing and britain that is the granddaddy of a, a lot british common law that's the granddaddy of a lot of american constitutional principles to this day has no exclusionary rule here's what british judges said in one famous 1861 case the brits actually have a pithy way of saying things they said, and this was where evidence was being introduced and against a defendant, and the defendant said the, c- the government acquired it illegally, improperly. And here's what the judges said. It matters not how you get it. If you steal it, even, it would be admissible. <laughs> the trial is about truth and about guilt or innocence, you know, truth and falsity. That's what it's about. And every judge in America understood that for 100 years. You can say, well, then how do we eventually get the exclusionary rule Oh, maybe we'll talk about that in another episode, but we didn't get it from the text. We didn't get it from the history, the context, originalism. I don't think we got it actually from common sense because, to repeat, the exclusionary rule gives me a big windfall if I'm guilty and nothing at all if I'm innocent. So how did they enforce the Fourth Amendment at the Founding of Keel because it does say, and surely you agree, that rights shouldn't be violated. That indeed, here's a first principle of unwritten constitutionalism for every right, there should be a remedy. Oh, and by the way, Blackstone does say that. And Marbury versus Madison actually quotes Blackstone saying that. So, what is the remedy for a Fourth Amendment violation? Well, if you read it with care, you'll hear what it is. So, start with the text again. And it is not criminal procedure even though it's taught criminal procedure today and other amendments actually are about criminal procedure. The fifth, the sixth amendment says in all criminal prosecutions, and then there are certain special rules for criminal prosecutions. The fifth amendment talks about capital or otherwise infamous crimes and double jeopardy in cases of life and limb. So other amendments really are about criminal cases, but the fourth amendment actually isn't. It's not criminal procedure law. It's tort law it's property law that is the background law that makes and you and me and our audience members in general safe secure in our persons houses papers and effects when someone you know assaults my person touches my person improperly and and as a doctor you actually know if, if if you touch someone without their proper consent oh That's a criminal battery, but it's also tortious.
0: You could get, you could get sued. So if someone- It's not covered by malpractice insurance, by the way, doctors out there.
1: Yeah. And if someone trespasses into your house without your permission, that is a tort. Property law protects you, tort law protects you. So now I'm going to read to you again, the language, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects- against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. Okay, but what if it is? What if you are intruded upon? At the founding, here's what you did. And what law defines whose house it is? Property law says, okay, in Guilford, it's my house. You, You know, in Princeton Junction, it's your house. Whose papers are these? Well, they're going to be property laws saying those are the government papers or those are the private papers of Donald J. Trump, private citizen. Property law defines whose papers they are, you know, whose house it is. It's, is it is it a um, Miralago, a private residence, or is it the White House, a public space? So property law defines, oh, what about effects? Well, that's my stuff. You know, don't touch my stuff, my, my all things that I own uh, other than, than, than real property. A pocket knife, um, paper clip, a watch fob, a painting. Those are all effects. But what law defines, you know, whose painting it is, whose watch fob it is? property law. Okay, so what happened at the founding and for a 100 years um, in every court in America, state and federal, if the government did improperly search or seize? Well, here's what happens. This is America, you sue them, you being the person trespassed upon, the person uh, that you claim been improperly searched or seized. Now, The government, you see the government official who does this, you know, the jackbooted thug, the FBI agent, whatever, the henchman. And the henchman says, the government, you know, the government lets me do this. Okay. So, Andy, if I reach into your pocket and take out your wallet, that's actually trespass. That's a tort. I generally can't do that without your permission. But when the government reaches into your pocketbook and takes out your money, they say, oh, that's taxes, (laughs) We're allowed to do that. So law permits, it is true, government officials to do various things that private individuals can't. So you in the old days would, and, and this is, by the way, all of this, audience members, is chapter one of the words that made us. It's actually about a lawsuit involving government searching and seizing in private dwelling places in Boston in 1761. A controversy called the ritz of assistance case that I'm going to tell you a little bit more about in just a few minutes. So I'm going to connect it to the the, the book, which I haven't plugged in the last 30 seconds, and eventually we'll get to Mar-a-Lago and the real issues in that bruhaha. Okay, so there is no exclusionary rule, and it's perverse to let guilty people go free and to not provide a remedy for innocent people. But there was a remedy for innocent people. It's a trespass lawsuit. You sued the government official, but he says, oh, the government authorize me to do it what do you say no it didn't because even if it tried to this was an unreasonable search or seizure and no government is ever allowed to authorize an unreasonable government search or seizure the right of the people to be secure in their persons houses papers and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated full stop okay now who would decide? Because you think it's unreasonable, he says, well, fine, okay, it's not just that I'm the government, it's that what I did was reasonable. Well, who decides whether it's unreasonable or not? In At the founding, this would be a tort suit brought in open court. There would be a judge, but there would also be a jury, and a jury might play a particular role in deciding whether this was reasonable or un- unreasonable government contact, uh, conduct. It would be a public proceeding Ordinary people would would look on. You'd be oh, the, the plaintiff is represented by a lawyer. The defendant is represented by a lawyer. Judges make rulings. Juries do their thing. The people watch, and maybe there's an appeal that goes all the way up. That's how it worked at the founding. And I'm going to tell you about warrant in just a minute. That's actually the vision. There's no exclusionary rule. There is tort law. Oh, and there's no governmental immunity good faith immunity or all the rest. See, so liberals are going to like this because right now it's not just the courts made up this exclusionary rule stuff. At the same time that they made it up, they actually got rid of the founders remedial scheme, which actually said, gee, simple question, was it reasonable or not? And if it's unreasonable, you recover, you get nominal damages, compensatory damages. If it was really unreasonable, maybe punitive damages. But there's no governmental immunity. If the government henchman violated the Constitution, then he's going to have to pay. And, and don't cry for him, because if he was carrying out government policy and the government, even if we decide the government policy was unconstitutional, the government's still probably going to indemnify him, compensate him, because otherwise no one's going to want to work for the government. He's going to, in effect, or if not, they'll pay him and he'll be able to insure against it unless his conduct was wanton and willful and outrageous. And if, if that's the case, he shouldn't be indemnified. He should have to pay over his own, out of his own pocket if he's just doing stuff that really the government didn't want them to do. Okay, so that's the world. I'm going to tell you about warrant in just a minute, but there was no exclusionary rule. There was tort law and trespass law and judges and juries and lawyers um, and punitive damages.
0: and. Now, I know you said you're going to talk about warrants in a minute, but just to complete this, would he typically have had a warrant to try to protect himself? Ah, well,
1: now you've just, Andy, you know, my, my Padawan, yes, you've now seen that warrants are not good things for private citizens. So now if you're a government official, a henchman, and you realize, oh, I could get sued um, by the person that I'm, whom I'm searching or seizing, you're going to actually want to get, if you can, in certain situations, a government authorization before you commit the search or seizure that, in effect, is, is immunity for you, a get-out-of-jail-free card, and we call that the warrant. And once you understand that, you see, the warrant is not always the friend of the citizen, um, it's actually a friend of the searcher or seizure. It's it's the get out of jail free card. It's the shield. It's And once you understand that, then you begin to understand why warrants actually have to be limited in certain ways. So here's what's good about a warrant. It issues from a judge-like figure, a judge or magistrate, although note that the Fourth Amendment itself doesn't quite say so, but but I think it, we can we can assume that, that, that that's what they mean by a proper warrant. It has safeguards. it has to ha- you have to have probable cause a government official can't just get a blank check to search anyone for everything. The government official is going to actually have to lock in to place in an affidavit the facts as he or she understands them so they can't make stuff up afterwards. There has to be an O and SB under oath with a particular description. okay, here's where we're going to look and here's what we're going to look for, and here's why we're going to look, and we have probable cause to do it here, are the reasons, and then if we find anything at all, we're going to have this piece of paper, and we're going to show it to, let's say, the homeowner, and then we're going to keep a log of anything that we take, let's say, from the home, and then we're going to bring everything back to you, Judge, and you can actually then double-check it all. Okay. Even though there are safeguards there, note actually that the citizen has lost something in the process. And this is part of what Trump is actually talking about. Um, So one, the government is initiating the process and maybe picking the the judge or magistrate, judge shopping. Now in Mar-a-Lago, actually, the magistrate was a Trump appointee, in fact. Two, the citizen isn't there and the citizen's lawyer isn't there. It's what lawyers call ex parte. It's like a temporary restraining order. If you're afraid someone is, is going to shoot you or something like that, you go immediately to a judge in a domestic abuse situation and you get some temporary restraining order. It's ex parte. The other person isn't represented. It's one-sided. It's actually secret. In mar a the government is, uh, actually got permission to unseal the warrant. But in the usual case, actually, it issues an enclosed chambers, okay, And so there's no public trial, there's no jury, it's just a single judge. The government official, in this case the FBI officer or something, is actually uh, going to the judge and maybe judge shopping. So here's what Telford Taylor, the great Telford Taylor, whom I mentioned in a previous episode, wrote about the history, the background of all of this. He said, to summarize... Our constitutional fathers were not concerned about warrantless searches, but about overreaching warrants. Far from looking at the warrant as a protection against unreasonable searches, they saw it as an authority for a potentially oppressive search and sought to limit it in various ways. In all of these cases that gave rise to the Fourth Amendment, both in America, the writs of assistance controversy that I'm going to say more about in 1761, which is where my new book starts, And in England, a case, a series of cases involving, in part, a man named John Wilkes. Case called Wilkes versus Wood, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that. In all these cases, both in England and America, he says the warrant is treated as an enemy, not a friend of the citizen. You see, because if the government has a warrant, then to repeat. You don't get to sue them for damages in open court with a lawyer and a jury trial. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't have warrants. It just means that warrants are necessary, but they're dangerous devices. Warrants and only warrants have to have certain limits like probable cause, particular description, oath, and all the rest. And doctrine Supreme court precedent often denies this, but then, you know, it has to acknowledge it out of the other side of its mouth because it, it, it speaks with a forked tongue, does the Supreme Court on this. So the court acts as if there not only is a warrant requirement globally, which there isn't, there are just way too many exceptions, 99% of the world, but also acts as if, okay, if you can't get a warrant, let's say there are exigent circumstances, you know, there's just not a t- time to get a warrant. You, a, a police officer sees a crime in progress or something like that. There's, there's not time to get a warrant. But what's the justification for uh, allowing a search on less than probable cause uh, under the court's view? Because even if there were all the time in the world to repeat, the Fourth Amendment is emphatic. A warrant cannot issue unless there's probable cause. So how is it that we could ever allow a warrantless search on with, with less justification than a search with a warrant? Doctrine has no answer. Amar's answers, warrants actually immunize the government official, and that's not true if there's no warrant. What's a paradigm example of a search without probable cause? Metal detector at an airport, for example, or stop and frisk situations, border searches. All sorts of things occur today, not only without a warrant, but without probable cause. But what I'm going to say is, oh, but these searches are nevertheless reasonable and i'm going to identify certain factors that aren't enumerated itemized in the fourth amendment but that can help us try to figure out what counts as a reasonable search and what counts as an unreasonable search but now or seizure but now we're asking the sensible question not did you have a warrant was there probable cause but was the search reasonable now let's let's take the um, uh, the airport because i'm i'm going to jump on a plane soon enough what makes that, so that search has no warrant, okay, of course, and it couldn't have a warrant because there is not, it's not because of exigent circumstances, there is not probable cause to believe that I'm carrying a gun, there just isn't, and even if there are probable cause to believe that I'm carrying a gun, there's not probable cause to believe that each and every other person is carrying a gun, and each and every other person, and it talks about persons, is being searched in a certain way, okay, so why is that okay, because again, with Even if the government had all the time in the world, it could not get a warrant in that situation. What does that mean? It's unconstitutional? No, that's preposterous. And doctrine acknowledges it's preposterous, but doesn't have a good answer because the Supreme Court says stupid things about the text of the Fourth Amendment because it doesn't read it with care and doesn't know the history and the context. And and has created all these upside-down rules that help c- guilty criminal defendants in the exclusionary role and cut off law-abiding people who actually are intruded upon from proper tort suits by creating all sorts of immunities and all the rest that, that didn't exist at the founding. Okay, what makes it reasonable? Just take the airport. Well, I would say it's democratically authorized. This isn't just the TSA acting on its own. Congress has passed all sorts of statutes, and, and if we don't like that, we can vote against that. That's not, that's not the only thing, but that's an important thing. It's democratically authorized. It's not just the deep state on some sort of adventure of its own marauding without democratic authorization. It's relatively non-discriminatory. They're not singling me out because I'm brown skinned, because I'm a Democrat, because I'm a self-described liberal, because of my religious views or lack thereof. So if you just think it's about how much cause individual suspicion or cause government has, if you think that's the key to everything, oh, then actually searching lots of people would always be worse. And I say, yeah, it's worse from a privacy point of view to search lots of people, but sometimes it's better from an equality point of view because at least we're searching everyone and we're not just, for example, searching black people for the benefit of white people or women for the benefit of men or what have you. So it's democratically authorised. It's non-dis- relatively non-discriminatory. It's relatively unintrusive. It's not a strip search. Actually, it sometimes involves a pat down. I have a, a chain around my neck and it often sets off the detector. And, and so I get patted down. But that's still relatively un- unintrusive. And most important of all, or last couple of fe- features there it's, there's a reason for it it's not unreasonable it is reasoned and the reason is cuz people have tried to blow up planes and hijack planes and yet another way of saying that is i actually am on both sides as it were of that policy on the one hand i'm intruded upon i'm the person being searched but I'm also the person being protected because once I make it through that metal detector and everyone else makes it through the metal detector, I'm, I, I breathe a little bit easier on the plane itself. And it might be different if the government searched some people for the benefit of other people. And it would might be particularly problematic if it searched underclass folks, you know, for the benefit of upper class folks or something like that, but that's not what's going on in airports. So now you see in a Mars world, If we actually read the text of the Fourth Amendment and we understand its ultimate context, we'd be asking the sensible question, not is there a warrant, is there a probable cause, but is it reasonable and what makes it reasonable? Let's look at the rest of the Constitution, which is about Equality, no race discrimination, no religious discrimination, no no gender discrimination, democratic authorization, no private papers are involved in this one. We'll talk about mar lago and private papers in just a minute. I want to just tell you, Andy, one story, and I'm going to get in trouble, but I'm going to risk it anyway. Since I mentioned the pat-down, and look, the Fourth Amendment doesn't say this, but if you're holistic, you look at the whole Constitution. What if there were a gender dynamic at the TSA? There isn't. There isn't. I I challenge my honest, I don't believe I've ever seen a male TSA agent pat down a female passenger, because that would make it more unreasonable. But it it would have nothing to do with warrants, but have nothing to do with probable cause. But it would have to do with reasonableness, which requires us to pay attention to other features of the Constitution, like Birth equality, sex equality, religious equality, race equality, and the like. So the story, my wife hates it when I tell the story, but this is really true. She was being patted down once by a female agent. Everyone was a little uncomfortable. And I know they say, oh, you can't joke with the agent. It's a federal crime or something. But it's not a federal crime just to be a little jocular in certain contexts. So I looked at the agent and I looked at my wife and I said, you know, we've been married 20 years and she doesn't let me do that. <laughs> And she she shot me a look at that. But you see, constitutional and common sense reasonableness, not a warrant requirement, not a problem cause requirement, not an exclusionary rule.
0: For those of you who are lawyers and judges and admitted to the bar in any state, you probably know by now that this episode is accredited for a continuing legal education directly in New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania, and by reciprocity elsewhere by going to podcast.njsba.com and entering the code I'm about to announce. The code for this episode is DOMINION. That's not case-sensitive. DOMINION, D-O-M-I-N-I-O-N. Thanks again to the New Jersey State Bar Association for partnering on this. So, you know, you've pointed out a number of problems with the... uh, current rules of the court. You've pointed out that the court at the founding didn't behave this way that they, there was there was a regime or a system that uh, didn't involve exclusionary rule didn't in, didn't involve every search having to have a warrant and so and so forth. Okay, and it changed at one point. So so we've come up with a bunch of problems w- with what the court decided was the right answer at some point to the question of how should these searches be you know organized um so in order to do that they must have had a question about what was going on at the time they must have had a problem with something that was going on with basically what you were saying is the way it should be what was the problem that they had that they felt they needed to fix and to institute this system and because because we need to know that because we need to make sure that we're addressing it
1: yes So a couple of things. One, I think they actually just read the words backwards. They read the words as if all warrantless searches are per se unreasonable. And you could try to read the two, there are two clauses. Searches and seizures have to be reasonable. They can't be unreasonable. And there are certain rules about warrants. And you could link these two clauses by an implicit clause that, all warrantless searches are per se unreasonable. I think they just read it wrong. But the minute they did that, it turns out you can't make sense of the world that way because there's just so many situations when you're going to need to make exceptions to that, like metal detectors at airports or in courtrooms for that matter. So then they began to just proliferate exceptions. And now we're in Ptolemy's world, they think it's a circle, that, that planets revolve around the sun in a circular orbit. Now they need to introduce epicycles in order to fit the data. And I'm saying they just got it wrong to begin with. It's actually ellipses, not circles. So, so it began because they read the words wrong. And they didn't actually study history. They weren't good originalists. And then they just said precedent, 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 just like my friend, Justice Kagan, you know, and, and they didn't want to admit that they made a mistake, and they, they kept digging down and making this exception and that exception, and that's the lemon test, and that's Roe versus Wade, So because it doesn't quite fit. They weren't good historians, and then they dug down and doubled down on, on precedent. Here's why it's predictable that they might have thought that, because they think judges are always great. And you see, in a warrant system, the judge or the magistrate, the judge-like figure, is involved from the very beginning, and they think that's always good. But it's not when you read the whole Constitution, because when you read the whole Constitution, you see, for example, jury trial, and you realize, oh, the framers didn't think that judges were the be-all and end-all. That's why they had juries, for example. So judges just misread the text and then started making exceptions and never kind of just went back to first principles. There are other things that are going on as well. Maybe in another episode, we can talk about how Fifth Amendment self-incrimination ideas also confused them. They, they ended up smushing together the Fifth Amendment idea, which is uh, self-incrimination. You see, that no one can be compelled to be a witness against himself in a criminal case. And now that does distinguish between criminal cases and other situations. And it is actually the Fifth Amendment is about excluding evidence of a certain sort, excluding testimony. So the court actually smushed together the Fourth and Fifth Amendments. I'm not going to go into it in great detail, but I'll just give you just a a teeny tiny um, hint of where this is coming from. Imagine actually you have a diary in someone's house. Fourth Amendment is about persons, houses and papers and especially a private domain it is about privacy it's about more than privacy as i said it's about equality as well metal detectors at airports involve a broader intrusion it's less you know there's more privacy violation but also more equality you no know, and discrimination would it be better if we searched fewer people but oh only people who look a certain way you see okay so Imagine a diary that's very personal and it's a paper and it's in someone's house. And if you read that diary and imagine it's acquired in an illegal, improper search. And if that diary is read in open court against the diarist, Oh, that looks kind of similar to forcing someone to be a witness against himself in a criminal case. And in order to prevent that from happening, you exclude the diary, just like you'd exclude improper um, force testimony on the witness stand from the defendant. Oh, that's an exclusionary rule of a certain sort, you see, and it's only in a criminal case, and Actually, if it's Keel's diary, it can't be introduced against Akil in a criminal case, but it can be introduced against Andy in a criminal case, and it would be different in a civil case. And so you're beginning to see now where the exclusionary rule originally came from. It came from a misreading of the Fourth Amendment, an inattention to history, an improper smushing together of the Fourth Amendment with Fifth Amendment rules about self-incrimination. And all this started to unravel in the 1960s in a case called Schmerber. Here's one reason, by the way, that we might want to introduce diaries. So, and and now we're going to need to have a theory, and I, we'll do it in another episode. Why we have the Fifth Amendment to to be in with. And oh, speaking of the news, it's not just Mar-a-Lago, but is 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 Trump all the time? Is Trump taking uh, invoking the Fifth Amendment in not a criminal but a civil context? And so we're going to have to talk about that. And I, you know i have written about that. And actually the Supreme court has, has cited what I've written about fifth amendment first principles. That was actually the, the, sequel piece to this Harvard law review article. And one reason that we don't force people to take the stand in a criminal case, when their life is at stake against their will is a- actually, um, they might get confused. They might stutter. They might be sliced and diced by a, a prosecutor, just because they're, they're not particularly uh, uh, articulate, they're innocent, but they can be made to look guilty. Certain things that they say, they might be very confused. They, they might confess to something that they didn't do. They might get angry and blurt out something that's actually not true. So, so words can be very unreliable. Okay. You're having a debate with your, a conversation with your spouse, you know, and you lose your temper. You say, yeah, you're right. I did it just to annoy you. No, you didn't do it just to annoy her, but in the moment, you blurt that out, but it's not true, okay, words can be very unreliable, and so we exclude them in a certain situation, because you shouldn't be hanged, you shouldn't, you know, lose your life, because you confess to something, or, or perceived as confessing to something that you didn't do, because you sweat on the stand, because you stutter, because you look guilty, even though you're not, because words, you see, might be unreliable, and you might think the same is true for a diary, maybe you're fantasizing, maybe actually it never happened, so here's the case of Schmerber. In Schmerber, which is a 1965 ish or so case, the question is whether the government can basically take your very blood, pull it out of your body with a syringe and introduce it against you in a criminal case to prove you're guilty of a crime, that it matches your blood type, it matches today your DNA, it had drugs in it, it had alcohol in it. Can the government force your blood body parts, to testify against you in a criminal case. And the court in Schmerber said, yes, it can, because the Fifth Amendment is about witnessing, and that's about possible unreliable words, and blood and DNA are reliable the basis for the exclusionary rule and all sorts of other things have actually started to come apart because of Schmerber. We actually separate the fourth and the fifth amendment in all sorts of ways. And the court still hasn't actually put it all together. Enter a telling them, here's how you can put it all together in a sensible way. And, Oh, liberals are going to like at least one aspect of what I'm proposing, which is more remedies for innocent people because to repeat if the exclusionary rule is the only game in town, it's open season on innocent people that the government wants to go after because of their race or their sex, or their religion or their politics. And, of course, Donald Trump is, is saying all of that. Oh, they're going after me for, for improper reasons. Now, we're going to talk about Mar-a-Lago and bring all these ideas to a point in just a minute. But now you've seen a completely different way of thinking about the Fourth Amendment in general. It's textual. It's historical. It's holistic. Let me mention, since I, I, I told you I was going to tell you a little bit more about the history, about John Wilt. There are a couple of cases that generate the, what, be, what becomes the Fourth Amendment. And one is the writs of assistance controversy. And I'll tell you about that in just a minute. It's in America in 1761. It's chapter one of um, the new book, The Words That Made Us, which I haven't plugged in the last 30 seconds.
0: You know, your article is, you know, Fourth Amendment First Principles, and I think, you know, that's... That's an important title because we want to get to the first principles right. of the Fourth Amendment. But, so but, can... but
1: let, let me be honest. When I wrote Fourth Amendment First Principles, I didn't fully appreciate the significance of the writs of Assistance case, and I actually poo pooed them a little bit. Um, and when I started researching the words that made us, I initially my initial instinct was to poo poo the writs of Assistance controversy, and now I see it's more important than I than I realized. Okay, so I've actually modified my view just a little bit on that issue on writs of Assistance which are one footnote in Fourth Amendment First Principles and end up becoming a whole chapter in the book. But in Fourth Amendment First Principles, I'm focusing on another issue. It arose in England at about the same time and involved a very famous litigant. His name was John Wilkes. He was a member of parliament. He's world famous. Americans pay homage to him. That's why there's Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania and Wilkes County, Georgia and Wilkes County, North Carolina. John Wilkes Booth is named for John Wilkes. And John Wilkes Booth is from a very famous acting family. It would kind of, be like Brangelina today or something like that, or the, the Red Graves. Ashley Wilkes in Gone with the Wind is an allusion to John Wilkes Booth. So John Wilkes was thought to be the author of a newspaper essay attacking the king and his ministry in a very rude fashion. So there was this warrant without probable cause and without oath or affirmation and, and particular description, just round up the usual suspects. Here's a piece of paper that authorizes you to do it. And the henchmen break into Wilkes's house, rough him up, grab his person and throw him in the Tower of London and are rifling through his private papers. See, now you see the words of the Fourth Amendment. Houses, persons, papers, What does he do? They don't find anything. Actually, he probably had written the thing, but uh, he he flushed it down the toilet um, uh, happily for him. (laughs) Yes. Um, So they don't find anything. So nothing to exclude. But what does he do? He sues them in a jury trial presided over by a great civil libertarian, Lord Camden who's going to give us Camden, Maine and Camden, South Carolina and Camden, New Jersey and historic Camden Yards where the Baltimore Orioles play. So he's a great civil libertarian. And Wilkes is this flamboyant litigant. He's a member of parliament, actually. He'd be like Adam Schiff today or something like that or Jamie Raskin. And what does he do? He sues in a jury. Trial presided over by Lord Camden, and the jury gives him massive punitive damages. It's a tort suit in open court, and the court says... You shouldn't, you know, be rifling through private papers that way. And a man's house basically is his castle. And you shouldn't have roughed up this person that way. And this authorization that you got is baloney because actually it it purports to be a warrant, but it doesn't have any of the safeguards of historical warrants, which are oath and probable cause and particular description and the like. And that's Wilkes versus Wood. And now you see it's actually... You know why my papers are important, and, and Trump is talking about papers. And houses are important, and Trump is is talking about houses. Now uh, Garland is going to have some things to say in response. But let me just very very briefly now tell you about the writs of assistance, because when I wrote this article in the Harvard Law Review, I had one footnote saying, "Gee, I'm not sure it was really about the writs of assistance." I've come to think the writs of assistance are much more important, which is why my entire first chapter is is all about this story. And Andy, you were there from the beginning. You know that I actually changed my mind about this as I did more research. But this is a story about where the American Revolution really began. Chapters called Seeds, where the seeds of the American Revolution are really to be found. They're to be found in Boston in a case involving the government basically breaking in promiscuously to people's houses, or at least that's what the great lawyer for the colonists claims. And John Adams is a fly on the wall. He's a young lawyer taking notes, watching this proceeding uh, unfold. Here's just one paragraph from the chapter one of the new book. It's page 12. Um, Armed with a writ of assistance, which is kind of like a a search warrant. It has some technical differences that turn out to be very important that I won't go into today. Um, Armed with a writ of assistance, A customs officer in Britain could enter and search forcibly, if necessary, any manner of building, including a private dwelling to find and seize smuggled goods. Okay, so that's what the Red of Assistance is all about. And there's a huge controversy about whether this violates the traditional rights of Englishmen and whether courts have the ability to declare acts, even acts of parliament unconstitutional. And that and that's chapter one. Okay, so.
0: That's the founding. Um, and I, well, hold and that's originalism. Out, um, so, what you're saying is, you lost the case and you didn't think it was important. Mm-hmm. But now you do think it's important and, and and it doesn't matter that you lost the case. And the reason is because people cared about it, because people were outraged by the writs of assistance. So, when I mentioned earlier Fourth Amendment first principles, the question is, what are the principles that the people cared about that they encoded in the fourth amendment. And that, and this goes into that because it was something that the people rallied around, even though the law read differently at the time.
1: And note that the, because we haven't, we emphasize a lot of words in the fourth amendment about persons, houses, papers, unreasonable searches, seizures, warrants, probable cause, oath, affirmation, particular description, it shall not be violated. But I didn't emphasize this and you just did Andy, The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, effects. These rights came from ordinary citizens demanding a bill of rights in the ratification process. That's chapter six and seven of uh, the new book. And who enforces this paradigmatically? A jury of the people. A Seventh Amendment civil jury, you see, is enforcing of the people, is enforcing the Fourth Amendment by deciding... As guided by a judge like uh, Lord Camden, what's a reasonable and what's an unreasonable search, and and the people are watching. So yes, in a Mars world, the people are really important in all of this. They're the ones who insisted on a Fourth Amendment. The word the, the anti-federalists um, in the ratification process, building on state constitutions, which we talked about in their significance in ISL. The Fourth Amendment reads very similarly to a provision of the. Massachusetts Bill of Rights of 1780. And I told you lots of things in the federal constitution built on state constitutions who drafted that provision of the Massachusetts constitution of 1780, all about search and seizure. Oh, that was John Adams. You see? So then I thought, Oh, I better pay attention to writs of assistance because John Adams made a big deal of it. And he was there in 1761 and he writes the state constitutional provision. and The federal constitution actually is building on that. So, And the anti-federalists, who are the people in the ratification process, we, the people of the United States, are demanding a bill of rights. And this amendment says the right of the people. In America, it's very much about juries, because what uh, the Brits are trying to do is take things away from juries with things called uh, vice-admiralty and admiralty courts, in which judges are acting without juries. And juries are juries of the people. Now, Andy, you know what we're just doing? We're doing holistic constitutional analysis. You see how um, actually the Seventh Amendment civil jury is coming into the picture and its way of enforcing the Fourth Amendment. It's about we, the people, the same phrase that came from the people organically. I emphasized earlier that when there are searches and seizures in airports, basically the people are acquiescing in that. We vote for lawmakers who um, authorize the TSA to do all of that. This is not just the bureaucrats doing it on their own. So This is originalism. It pays attention to the text. It focuses on the historical context and the case studies that actually the cases that that generated the relevant constitutional text. It tries to be holistic. I haven't yet talked uh, just enough about papers, which isn't going to involve First Amendment themes in in just a bit. It's about papers, houses. What's houses about? Privacy. Um, Houses are are, are private places in a way that airports aren't and and shopping malls and, and warehouses and factories Okay, so, wow, there's a lot going on here, but it's constitutional holism, you you see. Text, history, all sorts of other constitutional provisions and principles, and the court hasn't quite gotten that right. So I'm going to tell you now about an easy case that the court got wrong, that if they knew their history, they would understand, actually, why this was an easy case. And then I'm going to connect it all to Mar-a-Lago and, and what the issues are between Garland and Trump. Okay, so this case, which I talk about in Fourth Amendment First Principles, involved the Vietnam War, and there was a student protest on the Stanford campus, and violence ensued. the cops tried to suppress the student protesters, very similar to what was happening at other college campuses, very famously at Columbia, for example, cops beating heads and students pushing back. Cops were injured, and when cops are injured, oh, they often behave very badly, even after the fact. Who was covering all of this? The student newspaper, the Stanford Daily News, and uh, they had a photographer on the scene taking pictures, and they published at least one of these photographs in the Stanford Daily News. And now the cops think to themselves, oh, we want to find out which students misbehaved, you know, who did what? Maybe the Stanford Daily News has some evidence In its offices, and if we can go through the uh, the office, um, rifle through the office, we can find photographs and other stuff that will help us get the bad guys. What do they do? They go secretly and get a warrant, um, which is what doctrine tells them to do. Go to a judge, get a a, a warrant. The judge issues the warrant because there's probable cause to believe that uh, there's evidence in the files of the Stanford Daily News you see evidence of possible criminal wrongdoing. Here's a key fact. There is no probable cause to believe that the Stanford daily news themselves were the culprits that they had done themselves, that they um, were the wrongdoers in any way, shape or form, nor was there even probable cause to believe that if they had, been served with a subpoena or, you know, asked politely, will you give us your files? They probably would have said no. OK, so maybe there was probable cause to think that they would have said no to that. But there was no probable cause shown to the judge that Stanford Daily News would have ignored the subpoena, defied a subpoena, ripped up the photographs and, say, flushed them down the toilet to, to pick an outlandish hypothetical. Of course, no one would ever do that.
0: It's hard um, to say that, we're, well, we're not going to we're just going to skip over the subpoena because we think you would have challenged the subpoena. I mean, that doesn't seem like a, a reasonable uh, objection to issuing a subpoena.
1: So, so there again, there was, um, so now not only how much probability do you need, but what kind of probable cause? And you say, oh, well, probable cause that a crime has been committed, but that's not enough, okay? So imagine actually the bad guy. Now, if, if the gun is in his house, Yes, there's probable cause to believe that if you actually subpoenaed him, please, O.J., you know, provide any bloody knives that you might um, that might be in your house. Yeah, he's probably you know going to try to throw that bloody knife away. Please, Vito Corleone, you know, hand us you know any any guns with your fingerprints on it that you might have used to to kill Don Finucci or something. No, okay, but imagine instead there is probable cause to believe you'll find the murder weapon somewhere, but it's on someone else's premises, someone who's not in cahoots with the wrongdoer that the, the, the criminal suspect technically warrants issue against places they are in legal term uh terminology um in rem they go against a place okay so amar says and this is relevant to the stanford daily news case oh it's not just about the quantum of probable cause you need more likely than not 40 percent, whatever and probable doesn't actually always mean more likely than not but we won't get into all of that it's not just how much probability you need to happen but What kind of probability? And I say, oh, you need – this is the kind of probable cause that you really should have. You, at a minimum, the warrant requirement – but again, the cause doesn't quite say this, but this is what would make sense. should require probable cause to believe that the custodian, let's say, of a a paper, of uh, some document would defy a subpoena or, stricter still, would destroy the evidence. And why are subpoenas better? See, because they're much less intrusive. You're not rifling through You're not breaking into someone's house. You're not rifling through their files. And if you have every reason to believe that, of course, they're going to comply, it's so much less intrusive to have a subpoena than a warrant. And that's part of what Trump is arguing. But let me first... uh, Hold
0: on. I mean, before we leave this, I think there's other differences between subpoena and a warrant that are are relevant here. With a, a warrant, it's ex parte, a subpoena. Yes. You yes. Can, you can challenge a subpoena. So so there's, you know, it's an adversarial process potentially there where there isn't in, in the case of a warrant. So that's that's a big difference. Yes. Um,
1: and you're seeing all this. And so, uh, you know, and, um, and now you're seeing, oh, you're, you're seeing due process is implicated here. I've, I've mentioned racial equality. And sex equality and religious equality, I'm going to talk about First Amendment um, issues, uh, newspapers, and because it says papers in in in, in just a minute. Um, I've already brought in the civil ju- uh, jury into the equation. But now you're seeing also just fair procedures. Sometimes you have to have ex-party procedures, but they're always dangerous, and we shouldn't have more than are absolutely necessary. Okay, so now I'm going to read you what I wrote about the Stanford Daily News case, Searcher versus Stanford Daily News, which was from 1978. Here's what I say A search or seizure of newspaper files should cause special alarm and require special safeguards. The Wilkes v. Wood case, that was the case involving John Wilkes, should have taught us all about the special dangers posed by the government's searching and seizing documents from the press. And remember, it says papers above and beyond everything else in the world. But the lesson was lost on the court in Zurcher versus Stanford Daily, a 1978 case involving Stanford University's student newspaper. So by the way, I'm saying the court's getting an easy case wrong because they're not good originalists. Law enforcement officials wanted evidence against violent student protesters and thought they would find some in the files of the Stanford Daily. There was no claim that the Daily had been part of the protest, but the paper had covered the events and was believed to have photographs and other material in its files that might help identify the culprits. Armed with an ex parte warrant, police officers searched the Daily's offices. The Daily then brought a civil suit for declaratory and injunctive relief, and the Supreme Court sided with the government thereby blessing the search and inviting others like it. So here, the Stanford Daily News has done nothing wrong. This is not an exclusionary rule case where the guilty guys are getting off, you know, um, getting away literally literally with murder on law and order and, and until Jack McCoy figures out, a, you know, a, a way out of that. Um, this is... Just like Wilkes versus Wood, it involves a newspaper and an improper intrusion, and they're suing for damages in a civil suit and, and declaratory relief and, and, and a jury trial in open court with lawyers and all this. This is just the founding era, what Jed Rubinfeld would call the paradigm case, and the court's going to screw it up badly. The facts of Zurcher cried out for comparison with Wilkes. A civil suit brought to challenge a search carried out under an oppressive warrant for an. And inflammatory newspaper articles, yet the greatest search and seizure case in Anglo-American history went unmentioned and unanalyzed. Warrants were good, required, said the court. And this search had a warrant. You see, judge is good. This had you know, judge had authorized this. Bowing to this Fourth Amendment worship of the warrant, Justice Stewart joined by Justice Marshall, dissented solely on First Amendment grounds. And by the way, Potter Stewart was editor-in-chief of the Yale Daily News, his student newspaper, back as a Yale undergrad. And and he dissents, but he doesn't quite see the Fourth Amendment thing. He only makes a First Amendment argument.
0: Which is ironic because this is an example of where the First and the Fourth Amendment are in sync. And by referring to papers, and when you understand Wilkes, it's yes. clear that the press is, is implicated here at First Amendment.
1: Hol- holism. Yes, this is an uh, originalism well done. Okay, back, back to what I said back in 94. What was missing was a way of integrating First Amendment concerns explicitly <laughs> into the Fourth Amendment analysis. And the vehicle for this integration is, of course, not the warrant, not probable cause, but constitutional reasonableness. In Zied, the Zurcher majority mouthed the right words, but then proceeded to ignore them. And here the, uh, here's a quote. Where materials sought to be seized may be protected by the First Amendment, the requirements of the Fourth Amendment must be applied with scrupulous exactitude. A seizure reasonable as to one type of material in one setting may be unreasonable in a different setting or with respect to another kind of material. So just so, but then they miss it all. Okay. what do I say? Under this approach, First Amendment concerns could well trigger special Fourth Amendment safeguards, heightened standards of justification prior to searching, immediate uh, pre-search, appealability of any proposed search. That's what you were saying before, Andy, being able to challenge it before, like you could in a subpoena, before the search has happened, with the premises sealed in the interim to prevent uh, interim destruction of evidence specially trained nonpartisan marshals or magistrates or masters to carry out the search, and so on. The First Amendment lesson can be generalized. For example, searches of attorney's offices often implicate special concerns of attorney-client privilege protected by the Sixth Amendment. Unless these searches are conducted with special precautions, say an on-the-scene special master to screen out privileged material before any document is probed by police eyes, they too should be deemed constitutionally unreasonable. Why does the court not see any of that? Because it says, warrants good, warrants required, judge is always good. This was a judge in advance, there was a warrant, it met the the rules of the Fourth Amendment, probable cause, but they didn't ask what kind of probable cause. Yes, probable cause to believe that a crime had been committed and there was evidence of a crime, but not probable cause to believe that the Stanford Daily News was in cahoots in any way, shape, or form with a criminal, not probable cause to believe that they would actually destroy the evidence and flush it down the toilet. And it's so outrageous, you see, because and th- they're actually not taking a student newspaper seriously. That's why I think. I think these are oldsters, and now we're back to 18 arguments for 18 years. If this had been the Washington Post, let's go back to our episodes with the great Bob Woodward. Imagine that reading Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein's stories every day, Richard Nixon had gotten the bright idea of, of trying to rifle through the files of the Washington Post, and, and here's what he does. He goes to some judge. He gets his, his henchman, to, um, his Justice Department to go to some judge and says – we have just read a story about prostitution on the streets of Washington, D.C., You know, an expose about prostitution. You know, we're shocked, shocked, the gambling, the prostitution is going on in D.C., and it appears that the Washington Post has some evidence of um, that, that might um, bear on this. There's probable cause indeed to believe that they have evidence of a crimes being committed in Washington, D.C., so we want a warrant and actually to go right, rifle through their files. And I, you think, my God. That would be horrible. Now, in fact, because the Supreme Court so badly screwed the pooch, it was 5-3 in the Zurcher case, Congress actually overrode them in a statute uh, signed by Jimmy Carter. It's discussed in the article. It's the Privacy Protection Act of 1980. And it says when it comes to newspapers um, and journalists, there are special protections. And that's good. Um, but I'm saying, gee, in today's world, maybe you know, every tweeter is a, is a journalist of source. It's a little tricky. I'm making a different point. I'm actually saying there, there needs to be, in general, even if there, we're not talking about a newspaper, even if we're talking about Mar-a-Lago or, 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 or your house or mine, um, there needs to be probable cause to believe that a subpoena would be unavailing. Because the subpoena is less intrusive. Probable cause to believe, to repeat, that um, if a subpoena issued, the recipient of the subpoena would um, destroy the evidence uh, rather than comply with the lawful subpoena after proper appeal. And now we're in a perfect position, I think, to return to to, uh, Florida and Trump versus Garland.
0: Okay. Now, we don't have all the facts, um, but... We do know some of the issues that people are, have uh, have discussed, so we're in a position to to talk about it. Um, but of course, we're going to qualify what we have to say um, with the notion that we don't have have all the facts. And not everyone has uh, been so uh, so careful, when, <laughs> including yes, uh, some um, of your uh, students. I, I do you have anyone in mind, Andy? Well, I, I one of, I think one of your students may not have learned this lesson. Um, yes, one of my students who shall remain nameless, uh, him who shall
1: not be named, but um, whose name rhymes with um, a gosh molly, um, um, and whose initials are J.H., and who is a <laughs> senator of the United States, without, you know, it seems, knowing many of the facts. Now, maybe he knew the facts, and if so, I just committed a gross injustice, but it seems without really knowing a lot of the facts, immediately said, Garland must be impeached. Oh, wow. And presumably convicted. And he's going to be on as a senator, um, part of the judge and jury um, in that impeachment trial or must resign immediately. And that was before, I think, knowing any of the facts of the situation. Now, if this senator knew a lot of facts, then I take everything back. But if the senator didn't know any of the facts, gee, that's not what I taught the senator in law school.
0: And he would have to know quite a lot of facts that are you know, opposed to what's out there now. To the degree that we have facts now, and we do have some because the the warrant was released, and and we and uh, so, so General Garland with... has made some statements that, that with con- containing factual uh, you know assurances that that they tried to get the uh, information from President ex President Trump uh, by less invasive means than a than a uh, warrant before they conducted the search. So there there are certain facts out there.
1: So let's actually go through. He said. He said. Uh, Trump and the Justice Department, in fact, Garland, with this framework of analysis. Because I'm trying to show you originalism is actually smarter than the court. And the court needs to actually straighten out its precedence here, just as it did um, when it came to the lemon test in the um, religion uh, context or unenumerated rights with um, uh, uh, Dobbs and Glucksberg and Roe. Trump, you broke into my house, my beautiful house. And I think, yeah, I, I, I feel your pain. I wouldn't want anyone breaking into my house. I get it. And the Fourth Amendment gets it too, because the Fourth Amendment actually focuses on houses, which is a domain of, of, of privacy. Um, and, and we talked about in the Griswold case, your marital bedroom, for example. And Trump also says, oh, and they rifled through my papers. And I'm thinking, yes, I hear you. The Fourth Amendment actually has special protections about papers. And that's what the Wilkes versus Wood case, in fact, was all about, and the court missed all of that in Zercher versus Sanford Daily News. Yes, it wasn't the house, but these were very important papers with First Amendment significance. You see, okay. So Trump—that's how Trump begins, and in effect, the Justice Department said, "A warrant." Um, We had a warrant. We didn't just do this on our own. And because any government official who did this on his own, oh, was going to get sued big time. And you can be sure that they're not going to do this. They're going to want actually a piece of paper that authorizes this. Now, what kind of piece of paper was that warrant? It was issued by a magistrate, you know, by someone who's not in, it doesn't answer to Joe Biden, can't be fired, wasn't, uh, can't be fired at will by Joe Biden, the way the Secretary of the um, defense can or the attorney general, for that matter. But the attorney general didn't issue this warrant. Biden didn't issue this warrant. A Biden lackey didn't issue this warrant. A magistrate in the judicial department issued this warrant. And as it turns out, and then you can say, oh, but maybe they actually are just judge shopping. Remember, I think warrants are not always the greatest things in the world. And yet another thing, they're not just secret in general. I'm um, an ex parte, um, but maybe the government can shop around. But in this case, they didn't. Apparently they got the warrant from someone who was commissioned by none other than Donald J. Trump. Good for them. Okay, and so the Justice Department said we got a warrant. It had it met all the requirements of the Fourth Amendment warrant clause. They say in that there was probable cause to believe that a crime had been committed, improper handling of government. Uh, property and maybe even uh, classified property at that, seek, um, dangerous information at that. So probable cause to believe a crime had been committed and probable cause to believe that we would find evidence of that in this place. Oh, and we have an oath. We have this under oath and we submitted an affidavit with all of our reasons signed off by the judge. And And, and at first you could say, well, so you say, because usually you see warrants aren't published in the new york times or the washington post they're not just issued in the government press release they are given to the, the to the person um, on the premises um, um, uh, the, the warrant is shown to the person on the premises and if anything is taken pursuant to the warrant because the warrant itemizes what they're looking for and if you find anything that you're looking for anything and you seize it you being the government you have to itemize what you've taken, and, and leave a list of that on the premises here, Miralago, and take it back to the judge who issued the warrant so that judge can cross-check it against what the judge had authorized. And then there could be a lawsuit if they don't match up or something. But But all of those procedures were actually followed. And in this case, the warrant was unsealed, and it was unsealed because Trump made a big deal of it, and so he, the, the Justice Department called his bluff and said, "You know, then we think public interest here um, s- suggests um, that the public should have access to this unless you have any objection, uh, Mr. Ex-President." Um, and he was kind of boxed in. Okay, but ordinarily warrants don't aren't aren't quite public. Now, thus far, you see the Justice Department has been playing it straight by the book, but Amar says she warrants are sometimes problematic. And we've already identified a couple of ways in which they might be problematic. But this is not what doctrine says. One thing is, what what happens if you sort of do judge shopping? Well, that didn't quite happen here. A second is, what kind of probable cause did you have? Did you have probable cause to believe, not just that you would find evidence, um, but a probable cause to believe that a subpoena or something less intrusive you know would have been unavailing and trump of course says they could have just asked for the stuff you know but at least this you know the justice department saying we kind of did we kind of tried to work with you and your lawyers for a long time and you weren't very cooperative and you denied actually that you had any additional stuff but we had reason to think that wasn't true you we had reason to think you you lied to us oh well you should have issued a subpoena trump says because that would have been so much less intrusive one doctrine doesn't say that that's actually the searcher versus Stanford daily news case um, but Amar says maybe doctrine should going forward but it doesn't right now and by the way even if it did then I think on the facts of this case the Justice Department might very well have been able to say here are our reasons for having probable cause to believe that the subpoena you know would not have actually been uh, complied with final thing Amar actually is saying, Once you understand this isn't limited to newspaper offices, it's a more general issue about how warrants aren't always perfect, that some issues could be implicated by searches, for example, of attorney's offices, which implicate attorney-client privileges of third parties. Suppose you think the attorney's a crook. Fine, but the attorney you're looking for certain things, but when you're looking for them, you're rifling through and finding other pieces of paper implicating, you know, um, uh, other folks, his clients, and maybe completely legal things, but embarrassing things. Totally legal, but but very private. Amar says once we realize actually that warrants aren't always perfect, we could add additional safeguards to certain um, searches, even though they have a warrant in in. Um, sensitive situations and sensitive places. And what did I propose in particular? Again, doctrine doesn't do this, but once you focus on constitutional reasonableness, then you'll see you know, um, why I'm proposing these things. Here are some special precautions I propose. Say an on-the-scene special master to screen out privileged material before any document is probed by police eyes. So In this situation, it would have been great if the Supreme Court had listened to what I wrote in 1994 and at some point um, said, in certain situations, the search should be carried out under the watchful eye of a judicial figure, not an executive branch person, picked by the warrant signing judge or magistrate um, to um, uh, make sure that um, uh, uh, nothing um, uh, is... um, uh, being rifled through that shouldn't be rifled through. Here's the problem with papers. The problem with papers is you don't. You often don't know if it's the paper you're looking for until you read it. And once you've read it, even if it's not the paper you're looking for, um, well, now you know some private information that you really you know weren't supposed to know. Well, if and and if you're the, um, ultimately in the FBI, which answers to Christopher Ray, who under the decision of 1789. Um, answers to Joe Biden, oh, that's going to raise all sorts of issues, so wouldn't it have been better... If actually the person looking at each piece of paper and seeing if it corresponds to what the government is asking for, uh, has has said it's looking for, wasn't actually an executive branch official, an FBI official, but in effect, a judicial officer looking at each piece of paper and saying, is this what the government says it's looking for? Yes, no. Um, But doctrine to repeat doesn't generally require this because the court screwed the pooch in my um, opinion in the Stan- Zurcher versus Stanford Daily News case, and you see me complaining about this way back in 1994.
0: The good news for the Justice Department is that although the, perhaps we don't know, they they might have had a special master there that we don't know about, but or, or some other neutral observer. But they, uh, Christopher Ray, at least uh, as we recall, is a holdover from the Trump administration. So he was a uh, you know appointed by a Republican president and confirmed. Indeed. By a uh, Republican Senate, yes. So there, there is that from a political point of view that the certain degree of neutrality there. So if we look at the Justice Department, but, under, but hang
1: on, Andy, let's just connect. But under the rule of the decision of 1789, I think he's fireable at will. You see, and and um, so in a Mars world, precisely because executive officials do answer to the president, it might have been nice to have you know a judicial officer on the scene but to repeat doctrine doesn't require that because doctrine is seeing everything completely upside down thinking warrants are always good and that language of limiting warrants suffices you know we don't need to ever add to that because doctrine doesn't see connections to the first uh, sufficiently the first amendment the 6th amendment in a case of attorney client privilege you know here it would be much more broad concerns about the unique issues, let's be honest, that are implicated when former presidents and possible future presidents are intruded upon by an administration of the opposite political party. I mean, that Um,
0: does introduce, you know, uh, complications in general, but I would say in this case, you know, you keep talking about Zurcher, but this is not Although there are papers involved, this is not a, you know, a press freedom uh, issue or even a political speech issue. It's a question of whether or not, it appears to be anyway, uh, uh, whether or not the ex-president had papers in his possession that he wasn't entitled to, whether he, in effect, stole them. Um, Um, But but listen— our friend Bob Woodward
1: had all sorts of papers that, from a certain point of view, he wasn't entitled to, that people had, had leaked to him. The Pentagon Papers and Ellsberg and, and, and of course, presidents were going to say, oh, I want these papers for my memoirs and, and all the rest. I'm going to be a journalist going forward. So some of these things raise some complexities, but papers are special, Akeel thinks that because he reads all the words of the Fourth Amendment, not just the word "warrant" and "probable cause," and thinks he's done. So, why did they go out of their way to specify three kinds of search targets that are particularly problematic, above and beyond everything else in the world? A catch-all is effects, stuff, everything, and they say persons seizures of persons that would be arrests or stopped or frisks or something like that that raises some real issues of bodily autonomy of privacy don't you see um papers raise all sorts of issues of of press freedom but also personal diaries and the like and houses which are in a word very personal and camden lord camden says all of that in wilkes versus wood and james otis says much of that in the writs of assistance case. And and the one thing if I could rewrite Fourth Amendment first principles or modify it, the one thing that I would do is actually tweak a bit what I said about the writs of assistance, because I didn't realize I thought it was only John Adams 50 years later basically saying it was a big deal because I was there. I John Adams. And that's why John, and that is part of why John Adams makes a big deal of it, because he was there and, and and he wants to say, Oh, I was first, I was first, I was first. Of course, I would never say anything like that, you know. Our audience is laughing, of course, but I come to realize, no, I think I actually underplayed the significance of the writs of Assistance because, to repeat, the writs of Assistance had a huge impact on John Adams. That's undeniable, point one. Point two, he was indeed the draftsman of the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, which has a search and seizure provision in it. That's point two, which point three is clearly, when you read the language of the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, one of the precursors um,
0: of the Fourth
1: Amendment itself.
0: And because the people of Massachusetts cared about it at the time, which is why they elected James Otis um, to the legislature following this, which they had failed to do previously.
1: And what Andy is winking at me is that he is the one who reminded me to say that in chapter one. And, oh, he was so wise because that key little point in chapter one is what makes that whole chapter pop. Let me actually read you this paragraph because Andy wrote, actually, um, I think the best line in this paragraph. So here's what I said about just that, Andy, thanks to you. And I still remember, you know, it was 11 p.m. and I was calling you, you know, from the house and, and I said, oh, you're right. Let me just, you know, add, add some new language. Adams, old Adams, surely understood that Otis lost legally in 1761. The fiery lawyer, that is Otis, had won politically. Otis played to the crowd, not to the court like someone you know, <laughs> Trump perhaps. In the eyes of the crowd, the leading merchant smugglers who hated the writs, the sea of consumers who generally sided with the smugglers who kept consumer costs low, the patrons of the Boston Gazette, this newspaper that would, it was basically Trump's mouthpiece, think, think Fox News or One America or whatever. In the eyes of, of all of those folks, Attorney Otis won his case. He lost in court, but he won with, the, with his political backers. Less than three months after, and largely because of his hot words um, at the trial, Otis landed his first seat in the Massachusetts Assembly. Once in the Assembly, Otis used his new platform to continue to agitate against London-backed insiders like you know the judges in the case. Otis may not have followed cool legal logic, in February 1761, but he had found and touched a political nerve, and that 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 last sentence is a really great one. And that's, ladies and gentlemen, that's Andy Lipka's sentence, which I was at least wise enough to 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 to, to borrow with his kind permission.
0: And you should realize that uh, Akhil never lets anybody write anything in any. That is books, true. So. Proud. That is true. Even if it's one that, sentence.
1: that can get you, letting other people write your sentences can get you in a lot of trouble, but we're not going to go there today.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. OK. Um, all right. So if we look at the Justice Department's actions then here, I think that it appears that they were careful um, in, in a variety of ways that oh. that's consistent with not only doctrine, but also with your sense of how it should be. You know, they tried to get the papers by other means. They tried um, to
1: ask nicely first. Then they thought about the subpoena route, but they believe that they were being lied to. Now, again, if that's you know, if, if all this is going to have to be borne out, um, that's what they're saying at least. Well, there's um, there's and, reason and to believe do, that
0: well, that's true because Trump's lawyers provided. There, there was a letter from Trump's lawyers that says we've now given you all the papers. That uh, that you asked, but but
1: I haven't, with my own eyeballs, you know, um, Mm -hmm. uh, seen these these papers in these boxes. But they say we found a whole bunch of stuff that was not properly legally in his possession that they denied having. And he's gonna, and he says, "Oh, that's all declassified." And the Justice Department says, "Even if it's declassified, it's still not your stuff. These are government documents." and not your documents. Now, you see, we're back to property law, you see. And in effect, you have stolen government property. Even if it it had been properly declassified, and there's a debate about that, there are other statutes on the books about improper possession, private possession of government documents. The rightful owners of those papers, Andy, from a certain point of view, you see, are you and me and and our audience, the rest of the American people. They're our papers and not his. Um, and, and that was, and now we're back to Bob Woodward and Watergate and the statute that was passed um, in, in the aftermath of Watergate specifying whose papers these really are. Just like it matters, for example, if we're talking about Miralago, which is a private house, one set of rules apply there, or if we're talking about a congressional office, which is... You know the people's house, you know, or the White House, which is the people's house. Property law, trespass law, all these things are really important in the analysis.
0: Yeah, classification. I mean, it's not really a constitutional matter, although there are. It does have some implications in terms of the executive power. But uh, the New York Times had an article on Sunday, which uh, explains a lot of the different, a lot of the issues surrounding classification. I really highly recommend that article. But the, one of the basic points is that classification has yeah, to I, do... Yeah, I,
1: I learned stuff from that article. That was that was well done.
0: The basic point there is that classification has to do with who gets to handle the papers. <laughs> um, and really, so so Trump was saying, well, you know, I have a rule that everything is declassified the moment I remove it. But the thing is, that has no meaning because it has to do with who gets to handle it. And if he doesn't tell anybody... Then, then, how could that be affected? That's number one. Number two, the warrant and the law say nothing about classified papers. It has to do with secrecy and the papers involved. Some of them had, you know, TC top or, or T, TS rather, top secret classification and that, or, or rather uh, categorization, and that has nothing to do. With classifications, the word "classification" doesn't even appear in the world.
1: I'm making a different point altogether. You know, even if there were no concerns uh, about that, maybe let's just imagine they're just embarrassing, but they're not his politically embarrassing. They're not his papers, Um, and so he's not allowed to keep them, withhold them from um, their proper governmental repository because they're not his.
0: Right. So there's uh, there's any number of issues, not his they're secret. They shouldn't have been removed. Um, and so, and there's a lot but to of
1: repeat, you know, the facts are changing daily and it, it's possible that the worm will turn uh, once or twice more, but I've identified analytically the relevant issues you see.
0: The other thing that happened this week was that, uh, uh, or the following week, I guess, is that, uh, deposition is is given and uh, Donald Trump takes the fifth. So that opens up the door for... Some more discussion of other uh, issues down the road. We're not going to get into that right. today.
1: How the fourth and the fifth amendment self incrimination clause came to come together, what I call fourth fifth fusion, to generate this monstrosity of the exclusionary rule. How all of that has come unglued in the modern era, but courts still are keeping the exclusionary rule. They're like Wiley e. Coyote; they have no ground underneath them, but they just refuse to to look down.
0: <laughs> so before we leave this, I have a d- question for you about the about your fourth amendment formulations which doesn't really bear on trump per se or maybe it maybe it would but um you talked about where there's a right there should be a remedy and you talk about remedies in tort where you can sue Um, that strikes me as extremely unwieldy that uh that for for a defendant to be able to uh enforce uh, his rights against trespass and other you know bad searches that he, uh, he or she needs to to sue in civil court. Um, first well, of all, remember, seems- he's
1: not a defendant because in Amar's world, you know, nothing has been, he's completely innocent. Right. I'm actually saying at the core of the Fourth Amendment is an innocent person wrongly intruded upon who wants to have his day in court, her day in court, uh, uh, publicly with a jury trial. And right now that person's getting screwed even as, uh, people like O.J. Uh, or at least their are their equivalents on Law and Order are um, getting off scot free, and that's utterly perverse. And that's not how England does it, even today. That's not how any state in America or the federal government did it for a hundred years, the first hundred years after the Declaration of Independence, and. There are some justices who are aware of that today on the court. Most of them aren't, and the justices who are are originalists like Clarence Thomas, and they're beginning to actually say, hey, maybe we need to rethink all this. Cut back even more on the exclusionary rule, but also beef up much more remedies for innocent people. When states do it, that's called 1983. Um, but there are lots of limitations on it. When the federal government officials do it, that's called Bivens. And actually, unfortunately, some self-described originalists are cutting back on Bivens when they should be actually expanding Bivens. But we're going to have to talk about all that in another episode.
0: Okay. Well, I've got some more on that. So, audience, if you if you have uh, some questions on that, I invite you to write in about that because I, I do want to discuss that some more. And, at some and, point. and here's the challenge, audience. There,
1: there are going to be all sorts of imperfections, I admit, in a civil damage system, which is the framer system of enforcing the Fourth Amendment. Here's my claim. Every single thing that you're going to say about a civil damage action has a counterpart in the exclusionary rule that's the same or much, much, much worse and that you can't do without the civil damage action. So that's my first point. My second point is you can't do without the civil damage system because if if we're only exclusionary rule, it would be open season on innocent people, and we can't allow that. The Fourth Amendment actually shall not be violated, and the framers were way wiser than Andy, I suspect you may be giving them credit for. There are all sorts of ways, and we can talk about them. Lord Camden came up with various ways of beefing up the civil damage model, the the civil model more generally. We can also, it doesn't have to be damages. It can be injunctions and uh, declaratory judgments, all sorts of things. But we need to build up the civil model, the civil enforcement model for innocent people and toss overboard this exclusionary rule that only protects the guilty. And the guilty you are, the, the more it benefits you. And that's just utterly upside down. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a very good case study in originalism versus court doctrine um, in one of the, I believe, relatively few areas where they're not properly in alignment. In a whole bunch of areas, they are in alignment. The cases, 95% of the time in many, many areas of constitutional law make sense, but not here.
0: Okay, so imagine a world audience where there's no exclusionary rule, but there is an action against the government. Those things work together, so t- you can't think about them in isolation and, ha- and have a reasonable system. So they both have to have to be fixed, <laughs> I would say, in order to get to uh, to that that endpoint that would serve justice. And next time, Hilton taxes, direct taxes, slavery, and more. Thank you.